Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. It is my pleasure in this, the eighth of our shows, making predictions about 2011, to be talking now to Steve Keane. Steve is an Australian economist. Uh, he keeps the blog Debt Watch and is the author of the notorious book Debunking Economics. He's also a pre- professor of uh, economics and finance at the University of Western Sydney. Steve, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be talking to you again. I know I've dragged you away from the Australian Open to do this interview. <laughs> oh, I'm not particularly patriotic about watching Blake and Hewitt play tennis, so I'm quite happy to be here instead. <laughs> OK. You, you're a man who likes to, to, to stick his neck on the line. What, what's in store for us in 2011, do you think? Well, it's going to be a pretty uh, weird year because uh, you know we're now about three years going on four years into the financial crisis, and everybody is hoping it's a you know, black swan they can wave goodbye to. For those of us who saw it coming, uh, it's a white swan that's not going to go away because the real cause of it is a huge amount of debt people uh, got into speculating on share markets and, and property markets around the world. And uh, what's now happening is where the governments have been trying to continue or get back to the old version of the party if you like they're trying to get back to the days we're dipping into the punch and continuing to party is like there's no tomorrow um, that has now hit a couple of brick walls so uh, and the, the, the brick walls are really what's happening to state budgets in America and to national budgets in Europe and my feeling is that the real drama for 2011 is going to be what happens to the progressive falling over of uh, the European dominoes and the financial pressure that the American states are being put under. And I think that will start bringing unstuck the um, apparent nascent recovery in America. And I think this will be the year that reality sinks in as we're we're effectively in the financial version of the Hotel California. (laughs) What's happened, as you say, is... uh Debt has largely been transferred from the from the private sector to the public sector, and uh, the public sector has, or states have, kind of got away with it by quantitative easing and printing money and so forth. Mm. Do you not think that they can continue doing that? Just print more money? Well, they can certainly continue doing it. There's nothing to stop the American government uh, running virtually indefinite uh, budget deficits. Uh, nothing to stop the Federal Reserve. Uh, continuing pumping money into the financial system, trying to revive it. But what they're doing, and this is this is why I'm I'm, I'm uh, a skeptic about the capacity to bring us back to the happy days, well we used to be in, is that that is pumping up the economy with government created money, while at the same time the private sector has reached its limit and is trying to pay it down. And what I expect to come out of that is a Japanese stalemate where the uh, increasing debt from the public sector keeps the economy ticking over better than it would do without the government money coming in. But the impact of deleveraging is being ignored in the private sector uh, because that involves far more confrontational questions than most politicians are capable of handling these days. And therefore, you'll get a stalemate where there's um, growth will start to spurt and then die out again, start to spurt and die out again, and will bounce along 
scrape along the bottom of the economic growth path rather than going back to, to sustained growth. If you look at the, the, the financial markets, stock markets, I mean, do you think they'll carry on going up? No, I think that's going to be – this has been the longest bear market rally in uh, stock market history. If you look back in the 1930s, you'll see there was a similar rally back in uh, late 1929 and 1930 itself, again in 31 and 32, uh, particularly the one in 1930 was quite a long rally. This has now gone for, gone for virtually twice as long as the 1930 rally. But people should remember we still are nowhere near the point peak that those markets reached before the crash hit. So the Dow hit about 14,000 points. Uh, it's now bouncing around about 10 to between 10 and 11,000. But uh, it shows no signs of getting back to the previous level and breaking through. And I think what happens after a while is a degree of attrition sets in uh, when people realize their share market prices are based on expectations of future returns that aren't turning up. And then I think the bear market rally will come to an end. But this is being pumped up also substantially by an enormous amount of that money the government's been created, actually going into sustained asset markets. And to me, that's a travesty of what economic management should be about. So in many ways, we've had a Ponzi scheme that drove up the debt levels and drove up the asset prices as well. And the governments are now trying to fund the Ponzi scheme. Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely right. The 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 it's it's created all sorts of distortions and it's uh, increased the gulf between the richest and the poorest. Oh yeah, there's I mean, there's actually Jamie Galbraith that does excellent work on uh, inequality in America. Very good technical work there. Uh, did a very nice paper some time ago where he's looking at the degree of inequality around the world and made the argument that. A lot of people have heard that you need growth to reduce inequality first off. So you, you start with a very unequal society, uh, <clears throat> you know, a feudal society in nature. And then as growth occurs for a while, inequality rises. But then after a while, when you get to a certain point, it falls again. Well, what he's shown is that that happened in America. And now it's going back in the other direction. Inequality is rising once more. And the sole cause of the increase in inequality, in inequality is the people who are benefiting from asset market bubbles, of course, are the wealthy. Mm-hmm. So... This is, this is part and parcel of the whole process. And in my own mathematical modeling of the, of the um, financial cycles and capitalism, which is one of the reasons why I saw this crisis coming, one result that I didn't expect to see, to, to, to see coming out of my modeling, which turned up as, a, as an inherent part of the system, is that when you have a debt bubble going on, the people who actually pay for the debt are the workers, not the capitalists, even when the capitalists borrow the money. In other words, what happens is the rising level of debt, even though capitalists are borrowing the money to finance speculation and so on, where that burden falls is reduced income share going to the the working class. And so what we've really seen is a huge transfer courtesy of the debt bubble. And yet because that gave us a form of prosperity where people borrowing money and spending it gave you the reality, really, of a booming economy, but a boom which was classically a Ponzi boom, that actually increased inequality and made the whole system more fragile. And yet that's what governments are trying to return us to with their policies right now. So to me, it ultimately has to lead to a breakdown further down the track. Yeah, I mean, what what can be done to change that? that? Do you, I mean, would you like to see wholesale reform to the system of money and credit? Uh, I do want to see those reforms, but at the same time, I think it's a bit like trying to stop the tides coming in. Uh, that the banking sector will always want to lend money. The, the fundamental truth about the banking sector is that they make money by creating debt. 
So they're always going to be looking for a way to create debt. And therefore, I, I think if you try to control that out of existence, and for example, there are people like the uh, American Monetary Institute who are trying to reform banking so that fundamentally banks are no longer able to create money. Uh, <clears throat> those sorts of reforms, I have some sympathy for the, what they're trying to achieve because they say that capitalism has always had financial crises. And therefore, if you want to have a system without crisis, we need to tame the financial sector. And that fundamentally involves taking the capacity to create money away from the banking sector. That's the argument they're going with. My feeling is that the capacity to create debt simply comes out of the, the, the accounting practice of double entry bookkeeping. When a bank creates a loan, it simultaneously creates a deposit. And unless you somehow prevent banks originating loans, which is what the, the ideas behind the AMI are about, then they're always going to have that capacity. So you've got to somehow block the behavior that, that's fundamental to capitalism of double entry, double entry bookkeeping. I'm, I'm a skeptic about the capacity to do that. What I think we have, could do instead, and this often comes across to people as more radical, uh, is to say we have to redefine capital assets in such a way that the temptation to borrow money to speculate on rising asset prices is removed. And now I know that the, the policies I've put forward are two very fundamentally very simple ideas, have absolutely no chance of being implemented in the next five years for the simple reason that it involves such a reversal of direction that no government on the planet will even consider it. Until such time as they've been mired in five years of, of non-stop uh, stag, stag, stagnation, rising unemployment, uh, certainly rising youth unemployment, increasing political uh, anger, and then finally you might get a politician like a Roosevelt who might do something about it. So those two proposals, and I'll just make them very broadly, and we can talk about them after that, mm -hmm. is to, uh, first of all, to redefine shares so that shares that are issued by a company and bought by from the company last forever, just like shares do now. But once those shares are sold into the secondary market, they last 50 years and then they expire. And the whole idea there is to make it unattractive to borrow money to gamble on the price of existing shares. And in housing, it's to limit the amount of money that can be secured against a property to 10 times its annual rental. The argument there being that that would level the capacity that somebody has to buy a place by borrowing more money than you did against their income. So those are my two radical proposals, and I know that I've got no chance of getting them in, but to me, unless we do that, you'll be talking to my successor, or your successor will be talking to my successor in 70 years about how do we get into this financial crisis. <laughs> Well, those are very interesting uh, um, suggestions, but I can't see either happen, happening without some kind of collapse first. So that, for example, the one about shares, you know, having mm -hmm. a 50, I mean, they're almost like a long dated option in a funny kind of way. Um, but the, you know, the, people have made so much money trading shares and companies rely so much on having a sh high share price in order to raise more money. Mm. Um Unless we just go into the most horrendous bear market where people, everyone loses everything in shares so that people no longer feel um, a vested interest in protecting them, I, I just can't see that happening. I mean, not without collapse. The, the one about the housing market is, funny enough, is almost more likely, um, although we need radically lower house prices first. Absolutely. And I think, uh, and I think you're quite right on both those guesses. That that's what's likely to happen in the future. Uh, remember, I'm, I'm still thinking we are still in a bigger bubble than the 1920s bubble. Uh, we're still in the very beginning of deleveraging uh, from those levels. So if you look back in the 19, 1930s, uh, the debt 
ratio in America before the crisis began was 175% of GDP. It reached 300% this time. It's now 270%. So there's been a substantial amount of deleveraging, but still you're talking about a debt level literally involving an entire year's worth of GDP, more debt than back at the peak, back at the uh, beginning of the, of the Great Depression. When that had finally wound out of the system, and it took you know, quite a few years to get there, uh, the Dow Jones had fallen 90%. I think it went from about, of, I think it was a level of uh, something like 380 points to, to 42 points over that period of time. And at the end of that, you could get virtually any proposal through. Now, we didn't get quite what I'd like to see, but we certainly had, you know, things like the Glass-Steagall Act and so on, and lots and lots of Wall Street bankers finding themselves in Sing Sing rather than in the, the uh, local boudoirs. So um, <laughs> I'm expecting, I still think we're going to see something of that nature. The, the, the laws of credit to me are, uh, can be delayed by the types of shenanigans governments are going through right now, but they can't be prevented so I think ultimately we'll see that level of uh, winding back of asset prices. And in that particular situation, then, yes, uh, people might be willing to consider something this, this extreme. But you're right, the housing is far more likely to be the first place it happens in. But even then, you have to see if house prices in America fall by another 30 or 40 percent before that's feasible. Uh, another, in, a, in the States, another 30 percent from here. Can you imagine? Oh, even- Oh, it's, it's great. again, this is, if, if reversion to the mean means anything, it means house prices in America still have got 40% or more to go down. Because if you take a look at the, the excellent data series that Robert Schiller put together with, uh, with Case, the Case-Schiller uh, house price index, uh, and take, go back to 1890 and set the ratio of that house price index to the CPI to 100, fast forward to, um, I think, about 1995, and the value was averaged over that whole period 103. So you know, roughly 100 points on that level was pretty much the historic long-term average until the bubble began in 95 and then reached a level of 228. Now, we've fallen back down to the stage where I think the index is running at about 160 to 170 now. Well, that still implies it's got about, you know, the 70-point fall from where it currently is. Now, that certainly works out to another 40% or more fall in prices. So reversion to the mean applies. There's still that far to go in the American housing market. Crikey, how far there is there to go in the Australian housing market? <laughs> oh, well, if they're doing a high dive from the diving board, we're doing the high dive from the diving board on top of Mount Everest. <laughs> it's, it does finally appear to have turned in Australia, is that right? Yes, it has. I mean, the reason that we, we, we actually started to have a bubble bursting back in 2008, people tend to forget that house prices fell about 5% uh, in, real, in, in nominal terms in 2008, and the actual rate of fall over an annualised basis was closer to 20% per annum, uh, I think, for the period of fall. Then the government brought in what I prefer to call the first-time vendors boost, where they gave uh, double the amount of money they normally give, from $7,000 to $14,000 Australian dollars, which is pretty much the same in American, to first-home buyers to buy an established house. And, of course, what first-home buyers do with that money is that gets factored into the, into the uh, amount of money they're taken as having as a deposit for buying the house. So they go to a bank, and the bank levers it up by the classic existing loan devaluation ratio, which in Australia reached over 95%. So that $7,000 became more than $100,000 of additional borrowed money, which they then bought into the market. And, of course, the money goes to the, to the vendors. So the vendor might have got, say, half that increased courtesy of market, uh, market competition. So the vendor, you know, the, the first-time buyer gets an extra seven, borrows a whole lot of more money, and ultimately $50,000 ends up additional money in the pocket of the vendor, who then, of course, uses exactly that same money to go and upgrade and turns that 50000 through both 
leverage and then whatever happens in competition to an extra quarter of a million. So when you factor it all through, you get a double leverage coming out of the government's boost. And that added an extra $100 billion to the amount of money Australians borrowed against housing in the last year and a half. And that $100 billion, of course, gave us a huge economic boost and increased house prices by 20%. Now that that's happened, of course, the whole thing is unwinding in the opposite direction because the only way you drag in more first-time buyers is you drag them in from the future. So people who bought in two, late 2008 and 2009 are no longer buy, there to buy in 2010. They're already homeowners, and ah. there's been a dramatic fall in the number of buyers at that level, and we're now finally seeing the momentum of the whole house bubble, price bubble unwinding. So the last figure that came out, which was, uh, I think, about uh, uh, came out in, November, in uh, uh, early December, uh, showed that over the entire country there'd been a 0.1% increase in house prices. But that was because Melbourne rose by 5% in the previous quarter, where every other capital city fell by 2%. Now the odds are the numbers which are going to come out at the beginning of February uh, will so show that there's a negative figure for the whole country. So, uh, yes, the bubble may well have finally reversed. That's, uh, that's very interesting. Um, it, it always amazes me how policymakers... Uh, rather than, you know, to pop an inflating bubble, actually pour gasoline onto the fire by finding silly ways of subsidising it at the bottom end of the market. Exactly. We, we've, got, we've got the... That's, that's where Australia probably holds the gold medal uh, in that sort of <laughs> behaviour. I mean, uh, the, Irish, the Irish tried to beat us, but, hey, we're better than the Irish at bubbles, so uh, we've kept ours going while theirs is blown up in their faces. And, Do you think you're going to get uh, an Ireland syndrome in Australia? Do you think it's going to get that bad? Mean, I, I do believe that the credit side of the country will have that impact, though we didn't we didn't have quite the level of um, debt to GDP that the Irish had, and certainly not the same level of uh, of foreign funding of our of our banks. I, th- I think the uh, Ireland and Iceland probably hold, would help. They do hold the gold medal there. Are you going to have not, ghost towns and things like that? Uh, we didn't build as many things. There, there, there was a larger building bubble in in Ireland than there was in Australia. People often use that as a reason for saying why Australia is going to come out of this better. To me, what it means is we actually did more speculation with our money and less investment than even the Irish did. Uh, But we won't have the impact of ghost towns depressing prices like they did in Ireland. But we do have the impact of a credit bubble bursting. Um, What about the your huge commodities? Is that going to you know your huge natural resources that you sell to the Chinese? Is that going to save you? It saved you over the last year or so. Oh yeah, that, that's 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 having a huge impact, and it's not just the uh, selling the stuff to China; it's also I mean, building new mines to plug more stuff to sell to China. So there's a genuine investment boom going on in this country right now, and that certainly counteracts the impact of the credit system unwinding. Uh, it's then a question of which going to which is going to win, China or credit. And uh, ultimately, I uh, even though I believe China will certainly give us a fillip for the next year. I think that uh, that's going to be against the rising headwinds of credit going in the opposite direction. And then that raises a question I can't answer, but I tend to be in the skeptics camp on this one as well. How much is China also driven by a credit bubble? Now, if they do decide to unwind, the Chinese have one thing that American poli- the rest of the world lacks, and that's politicians with courage. Mm-hmm. Simple reason, they don't face elections. Uh, but if they <laughs> decide to reverse direction in China, they can do it. And... Uh, it's not a pretty sight when China decides to change direction. Let's talk about the UK housing market for a second. Mm-hmm. Where are I? There's no doubt that it's. It's. I don't know how much you know about it, but the there's no doubt that um, 
outside of London, house prices are in decline, particularly in the north, Scotland, Wales. But in London, where I am in south-west London, the, the price of three, four-bed family homes is a good 10, even 20% higher than it was at the peak of the, the boom here in 2007. Mm. Um, yeah. What do you, do you make anything of that? I know it's uh, not your specific area of expertise, but looking at it from a credit point of view i mean a lot of and a lot of people who buy three bed three four bed houses in in southwest london you know are families who don't actually take on that that much credit how do they do it i think some of them have well-paid jobs you know it's a lot Mm -hmm. of kind of lawyers solicitors people who work in the city that kind of thing yeah and it filters down yeah there's there's no i mean i know so many people who are just praying for lower house prices but they're, they're in southwest london there just doesn't seem any real sign of it yeah, it's a strange phenomenon. Again, you, you're, you know, London and New York are the two financial capitals of the world, and uh, in that case, if you've got a bubble that's being, you know, maintained by state expenditure, clearly that's happening in America. I'm not so sure about England, uh, but they are then very much beholden to that bubble continuing in the financial sector. So um, it could be interesting to see what happens if that if that whole process unwinds. I think really you've you've got a a property bubble being sustained by the stock market. Um, a bear, bear market rally. Now, if that actually the bear market rally runs out of steam, then it might be intriguing to see what happens to house prices in South of London after that. Mm. How have house prices held up in New York? Uh, Is that something New you know? York? No, I, I don't know well enough, but I, I'm certainly looking at the the scuttlebutt. New York, Manhattan hasn't suffered as badly as the rest of the states has, but there have been falls, and uh, the further you get away from the financial sector, the larger the falls have been. So um, it's a, it's an intriguing mess, though, um, because you know Wall Street is the, the real engine of New York's uh, health, and the bonuses coming out of Wall Street, courtesy of the American taxpayer, are enormous <laughs> and are being spent on uh, on, uh, on uh, you know the luxury apartments in New York. Um, that filters through to the rest of the country as well, the rest of the city as well. So um, uh, they all say New York is a, is another is in another country. And I think that's true, courtesy of being so close to Wall Street. Mm. What about um, uh, now? What, what about the idea of a land tax? Is that something you've ever considered? Well, this is where the Georgists come in. And the one thing I must say about the current crisis is that it's, it's giving, making a lot of ideas which are being pushed out of uh, the economic core, uh, such as the, the Georgist attitudes uh, at one extreme and Marx at the other. Uh, back into being contention once more because at least they they warned there was going to be a bubble both extremes as whereas the middle neoclassicals got it completely wrong so the argument that's made in favor of land tax is that the, the wealth that people get out of land really doesn't reflect what they do to themselves to the land it's an increase in value courtesy of population growth courtesy of infrastructure being built <coughs> pardon me when cable okay, going through right now courtesy of a bubble being financed by the banking sector so the argument goes you tax that and that's actually because, because the, the wealth being generated by society, you tax it to get it back to society again. My worry with that is that that actually gives the government an interest in maintaining house, uh, house price bubbles. And that's one of the dangers I have. I think that the, in, in a way there's the truth to the argument that land tax would at least pass around the largesse out of the bubble. But certainly as we see in Australia... Governments here make an enormous amount of their actual revenue, state governments, out of taxes on land transactions. There's stamp duty. There's also capital gains tax for properties worth more than a million dollars and so on that are, that are not home, uh, primary residences. 
And so the government's got a huge interest in maintaining a bubble, not just in terms of it making it look like it can manage the economy, but also uh, giving it a um, huge basis of its revenue. For example, in New South Wales, it, New South Wales was facing a very large government, uh, state government deficit uh, back in 2000, early 2009. They're now reporting a $1 billion surplus. Why? Because stamp duty revenue rose. So to me, the danger of, of trying to address this by bringing in a land tax is that, yes, it might superficially work, but what it will mean is the government then has an even more of a vested interest in maintaining property bubbles. To me, we have to end property bubbles. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm not a huge advocate of a land tax, but I have. It does seem to work quite well in places like Hong Kong, um, and but I think you need. It's a bit like your two suggestions: is you need a collapse first. Because I think people wouldn't. People have. I mean, you know, people have so much money in their in their house. They wouldn't like the idea of being taxed on it, even though it would mean them paying less taxes elsewhere. But if you had a huge collapse first, and then you introduced the idea of a land tax, then it takes away the vested interest of the government in maintaining high prices because prices are already depressed. Exactly. I mean, the, you, you have to have a clean slate for these sorts of things to happen. So, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at my own position arguing for the sorts of analysis of how capitalism works that I'm building in books like Debunking Economics and Finance and Economic Breakdown, but also in the policy suggestions I'm making right now. I think there's no point in policies which will be easily reformed out of existence in the future once things get back to uh, normal again, meaning debt finance bubbles, and we find ourselves back with the banking sector running the show once more. I think we have to find a way of stopping the bankers taking over. And that's why I put forth the sort of reforms I do. But I know at the same time, there's no chance in the world of them happening until after the whole thing is deflated. Um, would you like to see an end to fractional reserve banking? This is one of my little joking points, mate. It's a bit like Matt Gandhi being asked what he thinks about Western civilization. He answered, of course, it sounds like a good idea. Fractional reserve banking doesn't exist. Ah, it is a manner in which economists have tried to understand how money is created, which implies the government actually exceeds the whole thing. And people think, well, let's get rid of fractional reserve banking and we'll have a much better system. We don't actually have it to begin with. What we have is a system where banks create money by, bank, by, by double-entry bookkeeping operations. And they say if you, if you, the, the fractional reserve banking argument says that banks can't lend money unless they have deposits. Mm-hmm. So deposits come first and deposits create loans in the sense that a person walks in with $100, the bank hangs on to 10 of that, which is the fractional reserve system, lends out 90, the person who gets that 90 deposits that at another bank, which can then lend out 81 and so on, and you finally get $1,000 of money being created out of that $100 deposit plus the fractional reserve system. That implies the strength is the powers with the depositor, not with the bank, and the deposits create loans. When you take a look at the empirical data, that simply doesn't hold up. What actually happens is, a bank creates a loan, and when it creates a loan, it simultaneously creates the money as well. So you go to the bank with a, an idea. The bank says, that sounds like a great idea. Here's a million dollars. By the way, you owe us a million dollars. And they simultaneously create the deposits and, and the loan at the same time. And the bank, if it needs reserves out of that action, goes and gets them off the market later. So it isn't fractional reserve banking that's a problem. What fractional reserve banking really amounts to is a bit of a, um, a fallback that in case there is a run on a bank, the bank has, is likely to have enough cash on hand to cover the run. So if you look in America, 
the ratio that applies in America is 10%. But that only applies to household deposits. They are required to hold absolutely no money against corporate deposits and absolutely no money against foreign transfers. So that 10% simply means is hang on to 10% of any dollars deposited by the household sector so that the household deposits in a bank happen to be a billion dollars the bank has $100 million in cash on hand, and if there's a run, it's highly unlikely to be that 10% will go in one day so the bank can keep on operating until the Federal Reserve rushes up with the, with the trucks of more money to keep the system going. So fractional reserve banking is actually a myth, and, and, and that's why this is one of the things I'm arguing in debunking economics and so on, that we've got a mistaken understanding of how the financial sector operates, and the last thing you can do successfully is reform a system you don't understand. <laughs> Absolutely right. Um, the so let's say I have a house uh, or I have the deeds to a house uh, for which you know an estate agent is says is worth half a million pounds, uh, and mm-hmm. I turn up to the bank with these deeds uh, and I say to them, look, I've got this house that's worth half a million pounds. Will you lend me four hundred thousand pounds? And the bank says yes, of course, and you have to pay us five percent. Um, what is the process that goes on there? In terms of in terms of the money creation, well, simply as soon as the bank agrees to do that, they then give you a um, you sign a contract with the bank. Mm-hmm. The bank then deposits four hundred thousand pounds in your uh, in your um, savings account or your check account, and records simultaneously you have a debt of four hundred thousand pounds to them and takes the deal. That's how it's created. Of course, it also that's the bad. So that money's just been created out of nothing. They don't have any assets to back. The, the only thing they have to back that £400,000 debt they've just created is the deeds to my house. That's right. They've got the collateral. Now, they don't even need that. I mean, the, 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 the proper role of banking, the role that it should be restricted to, is to provide working capital to existing businesses and entrepreneurial funds to new businesses. That's, that's to me, the fundamental role of, ca- of banking and capitalism. And that's what it's not doing anymore, frankly. It's caught up so much in asset speculation, it barely ever does that anymore. Uh, but that's that's a genuinely useful role because if you imagine, just imagine Steve Jobs um, didn't have a combi van, mm-hmm. something like what five years ago when he started Apple, and instead had to go to a bank to ask for a loan. Well, if the bank was adventurous, they might say, "Well, you guys seem pretty bright. This might work as an area. Here's ten thousand dollars." And by the way, you owe us ten thousand dollars. That would have given Steve Jobs and and uh, Steve Wozniak the money to go and buy the components they needed to make the first Apple. Now, of course, that wasn't the case. They actually sold their combi van to do it. Uh, but the, the classic entrepreneur, and, and Schumpeter makes this case extremely well in The Theory of Economic Development, which is a book I'd recommend anybody who wants to understand capitalism and, uh, and finance to read. Uh, he said that's the fundamental role of banking, to give people who have an idea but don't have the cash flow themselves to put that idea into operation, to give them the money to do so. And that's the genuinely creative role of banking. So that's what banks should do but aren't doing these days because there's a limit to how much money people will borrow that way. You don't borrow you know, 10 or 20 times your income if you are banking on an idea working that you still haven't tried out. It's hypothetical. You will borrow 10 and 20 times your income if you believe you're buying an asset whose price you expect is going to rise. And, and that disconnect that we get out of asset price speculation is what the banks actually always turn to to get more money than they can get if they simply fund entrepreneurial activity and, and some um, consumption. So to me, I want to stop that asset price funding behavior by banks. 
uh, and get back to the days when they do what they should do. But um, those days are still, unfortunately, I think a long way away. Um, do you, in general terms, I mean, you've, you've made a couple of asides about politicians. Um, in general terms, what do you think about governments? Do you think they're competent? Do you think they're incompetent? Do you think they're too big? Do you think they're too small? Do you think there's a bigger role for government to play in the economy? Do you think they should play a smaller role? Mm. I think there's a fundamental need for government to be a bit of an automatic stabiliser in a capitalist economy because our economies are fundamentally cyclical. They always go up and down and and a lot of those ups and downs, are, if we were just restricted to what, you know, again, what I call good capitalism, where it's all about innovation and financing engineers to come up with good ideas, uh, that cyclical behaviour falls on on workers who aren't uh, aren't the ones responsible for the uh, the cycles themselves. They tend to be passive in the whole system. And I think we need to have unemployment insurance for workers when they get laid off because of you know the cycles that occur naturally in the system and so on. And it's it's those cycles can attenuate the extremes of capitalism, but I don't think that the government can. And for do, the government to do that it has to have a certain scale. And there's obviously a huge range of services as well, which are the sort of things that are best paid for at a collective level. So things like insurance, uh, the medical schemes, and so on are far better off if they're provided for everybody out of taxation than provided by private uh, expenditure, because uh, we actually individuals fundamentally suffer. If there's not good public health, if you if you uh, believe oh, I don't, I, I'd rather pay for my own medical health, and anybody who hasn't got the money shouldn't get it, then you can have plenty of people walking around the streets suffering from nice little transmissible diseases. You're going to pick up. So there's a real reason to choose a range of services that should be provided at a at a national level. Health is one. A lot of transport is another, and so on. Uh, large power schemes can be the same. So there's there's areas in which government or collective Purchases are better than individual. You, you don't. You don't time, just, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. You don't uh, set any store with the argument that there's nothing that government provides that can't be provided better and more cheaply by the free market. Oh, I think it's possible to get the free market to go into the building. I'd far rather have the government doing uh, doing the funding and the and the um, and the private sector doing the building in many many cases. They'll do a better job most of the time. Um, but in, in terms of how things are paid for. It isn't really a case of whether the government's better or worse. It's saying, should you pay for it through a market mechanism or should you pay it through a central taxation-style mechanism? And if you want public health, then you're not going to get public health out of private health. If you want to guarantee that there's no instance of cholera, uh, you don't have um, um, people go, transmitting AIDS regularly, etc., etc., uh, you're going to get a better control out of, of a system where people pay for it in a public way than if they pay for it in a private way. So that's more my orientation on government in that sense, and plus also the role of the government as being an automatic stabiliser that gives firms cash flow they wouldn't otherwise have during a downturn and enables them to get out of the debts they get into by being too euphoric during a boom. Hmm. Would you like to see, uh, and this is a loaded question and I have no doubt that you will detect uh, the load behind the question, um, I, I think government's have mismanaged the system of money and effectively money that we use is 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 government issued currency would you like to see a return to uh or, or would you like to, to see it made legal to buy and sell to to uh in the marketplace in forms of money that aren't issued by the government 
uh, independent currencies. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I didn't actually complete the answer to your question. Uh, the other one, well, I'll just cover a bit of okay, that as do well. That, yeah. I don't believe go, uh, governments are run by politicians, uh, run by politicians telling bureaucrats what to do. And what you therefore get is people who are narcissistic individuals telling meek individuals how to run the system. It's almost certain to be a stuff-up. So I, I don't think our political system is up with the complexities of the of the world in which we live. And for that reason, I don't have faith in governments, as a lot of uh, progressive people tend to do. I don't think the government's going to solve our problems. I think we're going to have to change a whole way of running human society at some stage to cope with the complexity of the world in which we live. And letting politicians run it is not the solution. Uh, back to the banking thing. Uh, I think we are in a bigger crisis than we would ever have been if there was not a Federal Reserve system. And I think it's there I actually blame the, not so much the government, I blame the economists because the Federal Reserve's behaviour in rescuing the financial sector from every bubble that got involved in until this final one when it couldn't be rescued anymore reflects the naive attitudes that conventional, what are known as neoclassical economists have to how a capitalist system actually works. And they believe the financial markets couldn't get it wrong. Therefore, they fixed up every stuff up the financial markets did make. But as a result of that, we've got twice as much debt as we would have had if they hadn't interfered in the first place. So if we had a Federal Reserve that had no power to manipulate the economy, I think we'd be better off than we are now. So in that sense, I'm in favour of some reduction of the capacity of the government sector to manipulate the financial system, definitely. Whether I want to go back to the days of private money, I said in the fundamental way, I think we actually are still in those days. I think what we've actually done is put a, a pasted an overlay on top, which has gives us an appearance of control, which isn't really control at all. And the banking sector really has been fundamentally operating as if it's a private system, uh, pretending the government's in control. So I don't believe that either extreme is going to work. I think what we've got to do ultimately is remove the capacity, whatever financial system we have, does have, to finance assets, asset price speculation. To me, so that's, in other words, I'm seeing the government money, private money dimension of that discussion as the wrong axis. And I'd rather say a system that lets you finance speculation on assets versus a system that doesn't. That, to me, is the axis I think we should actually be debating upon. And if we actually got that, it wouldn't matter whether we had government-created money or privately-created money. Mm-hmm. At what stage did, did private, private money no longer be, be, become acceptable? Well, there's actually a very interesting history in America in the 19th century after the failure. Of the, I think I've forgotten the actual name of the, the, the government bank that failed, but there's a major government-backed bank that did fail. And then for a short while, about 30 or 40 years, a number of American states um, experimented with the idea of private money, meaning that you could establish a bank and you had to have certain um, collateral to back you. Uh, in some cases, you had to buy a certain uh, proportion of state-issued bonds and hold on to those bonds to, to, to back the assets you had. But if you'd say you had with a million dollars worth of those bonds, then you got the license to issue a million dollars worth of your own currency. And if you go searching in the 19th century free banking system, you can find examples of those notes. So on one of my blog entries on debtdeflation.com has uh, photographs of that, uh, of that money from uh, the 19th century. And... It worked in some ways, but there were all two major problems with it. One is what they call wildcat banking. And the idea there was that they, 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 the bank would form and open up a branch in an area, quote-unquote, where the wildcats roamed. 
meaning once they issued the notes, nobody dare go back to the bank to try to get the banks the notes redeemed at any stage for gold or whatever they were supposed to have them back by. And they basically were frauds. They'd run away with the money. Very, you know, it's a, a proud American history of doing that. So those wildcat banks failed. The, the um, banks in New York tended to work a lot more successfully. Uh, and that's probably because, you know, A, there weren't so many cougars wandering around uh, uh, 19th century America, or at least not, some, not ones on four legs. And, uh, and there was a um, degree of competition and visibility that didn't exist in some of the other states like Wisconsin and so on that tried the same scheme. But after about a 30 or 40 year period, they gave up. All the states went back to a system where there was only the greenback issued. So we have had history, but it passed. It happened in Australia as well. It failed spectacularly here and led into the 1890s depression. Um, it's, it's not the panacea people think. I see a lot of Austrian economists think that's going to, that would solve all the problems. Yeah. Uh, what it tends to do is cause more extreme cycles. Um, money is money is not the same as other commodities. It's a very big mistake to think about money in the same sense you might think about commodities. Now, it's great if you have private producers of apples, meaning the type you eat. Uh, you'd be far better off with lots of competitive apple farms and a than a state apple monopoly. Why not the same thing for money? Well, the thing is, it takes effort to produce apples. It doesn't take effort to produce money. And there's a very, very easy temptation to fall into printing your own money, which you should then lend out and, and earn profit on by its circulation, but to use that money instead and go and buy buy those apples down the road and get caught up in seniorage and then bankrupt the system and it all collapses again. And when it does, commerce comes to a grinding halt. Now, every 20 years or so in America, actually a bit more frequently than that in the 19th century, including during the period of free banking, there was a financial crisis. So I don't think um, that we can just solve the problem by turning banking into a free market activity. I think we just simply get the 19th century back again. And remember, the 19th century gave us Karl Marx. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that it's easier to print money than it is to grow apples. Um, I think that's kind of what we've ha had over the last 20 years in that in that people have just it's easier to rely on asset price growth than than it is to actually start a new business. Absolutely. It's far harder to be an engineer in the real sense than it is to be a financial engineer. I mean, which I, I regard the term as an insult to engineers, by the way. Um, so we've, we've found that when if you can finance an asset bubble, then asset bubbles can grow by 20 and 30 and 40 percent per year until they blow up. And we've seen plenty of examples of that around the world. Genuine industrial innovation doesn't give you those like rates of growth. China's showing us the absolute maximum you can expect out of that. And that's running at, you know, if you're lucky, about 10% per annum, more likely about 7% in real terms. That's the maximum real growth you get out of genuine industrial capitalism. And the temptation is always to make more money by financial engineering what that actually ends up doing, of course, it actually white ants the industrial system. So you get a notional increase in money and certainly an increase in wealth at spectacular rates for those at the top of the system. When the whole thing comes busting down and you realize it's actually really a Ponzi scheme, all that growth disappears. You're just left with the debt and the aftermath and you have a poverty coming out of it at the other end. So it's uh, we've been seduced by finance yet again and it seems to be part of the human folly that we do that. The only difference this time is we've taken about 70 years to do it as badly as we did last time. Um, let me ask you a question. The, the, in your atmosphere of, of rapidly deflating debt that uh, uh, you, you see us going into now, um, I mean, what happened in 2008 
and 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 I'm kind of referring back to our conversation about fractional reserve banking and double entry mm-hmm. bookkeeping. In 2008, what very quickly happened was that we 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 morphed from uh, a uh, an atmosphere where assets were falling in value into a liquidity crisis, mm. uh, and it was the liquidity panic that made you know that caused the crash. Do you see another liquidity crisis coming, or are or are central banks better prepared this time? I think central banks uh, responded very rapidly last time around, which is why we haven't uh, got out of the woods yet. Unfortunately, <laughs> you've made a very good point there. A, a major part of my analysis is to say we have to include the dynamics of debt and how we analyze capitalism. And neoclassical economics completely abstracts from private debt. Um, so my starting point is to say that aggregate demand in a credit-driven economy is not just income. It's income plus the change in debt. Now, that has a double whammy to it because if you say that aggregate demand is GDP plus the change in debt – and by the way, that's spent buying not just commodities but existing assets as well. That balances the accounting overall. If, if that's aggregate demand, then the change in aggregate demand is the change in GDP plus the acceleration of debt. And the reason things turned around so rapidly in 2008 is that we went from accelerating debt and debt rising more rapidly over time to suddenly debt decelerating at a huge rate. And that's what really made this Great Recession great, that rapid turnaround from rising debt to very rapidly falling debt. And that deceleration um, is what caused the recession itself. But it's easily reversed if you slow down the rate of deleveraging. Because actually slowing down the rate at which you're reducing debt actually gives you an accelerative impact out of that uh, change in the change in debt factor. And to me, that's what's going to be the trap for the next five or ten years, because it means that if you can encourage some slowdown of the rate at which people are deleveraging, that will actually boost the economy. And people will think, oh, good, we can relax, uh, happy days are here again. Then if they actually use some of the increase in, in income that comes out of that, to start paying their debt down again, suddenly we'll go from debt decelerate, growth debt accelerating and giving us a boost to debt decelerating and giving us a fall again, and we'll slump back down again. And I think this has been the pattern that Japan's been in now for 20 years. <clears throat> Pardon me. So the fact we have so much debt now means that we're go- I think we're going to be stuck in a case, a bit like a driver driving along a highway, accelerate, decelerate, accelerate, decelerate. You feel better when you're accelerating but you reach a speed limit because you're actually going at the maximum speed the car can move at, then you fall back down again. That pattern is what I think is going to afflict us until we realize the only thing we can really do to get out of the trouble is to reduce the absolute level of debt. And uh, back to your question about 2008. In 2008, America's private debt ratio peaked at just under 300% of GDP. It's now 270% of GDP, so it's fallen 30%, mainly through banks reducing their leverage rather than bankruptcies. 10%, 10%, it's fallen 10%. 10%, yeah, 30% in, you know, you pardon me, 30, 30% from 300, but 10% of 300%. Oh, okay. um, if we get back to where America was in the um, 50s and 60s, it's still got 170% of GDP to go. Now, mm-hmm. that is why I think that we're going to see this accelerate-decelerate syndrome going on for some substantial time until we realize that we simply have to reduce the absolute level of debt, then we can get back to the days when the, the, the change in debt doesn't dominate the economy. But that's still uh, a long way away. So I don't think, um, 
I think when the banks, are, the central banks, still aren't thinking that way. They're still thinking in a fiat money type world, you know, where, you know, where the sort of argument you made about a fractional reserve banking is really how most banks think money is actually created, including central banks. That therefore means I think they're not going to be prepared for when this deceleration in debt occurs, and therefore they get caught by surprise and have to rescue the system after the event again. And all they'll be doing really is whacking, to use the, the classic analogy, whacking band-aids on a gaping, a gaping sore, which we'd be better off addressing directly. Steve, um, what you've just said there is, uh, I, I suppose it's part of your idea that you've been working on that you told me about called the credit impulse. Um, do you want to kind of finish off on that idea? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is a term I've actually got to dot my head to other, some other economists for a change. A group of guys called Biggs, Meyer and Peck, uh, first put the idea together and when, when you it goes from saying that if you define aggregate demand as income plus the change in debt then the change in aggregate demand is the sum of the change in GDP plus the acceleration of debt and they define this term as the acceleration in debt divided by GDP is the credit impulse to get an idea of how big a push up or a push down the acceleration of debt is giving the change in aggregate demand and that when you when you take a look at that particular uh, indicator that has over 60 years that has an enormously um, strong correlation with changes in employment. So what we're seeing about you know, occasional uh, improvements in employment levels in America, apart from fudging the unemployed number as they do with their ludicrously defined U3 statistic, what we're seeing is a credit impulse occasionally turning from decelerating and reducing uh, demand and therefore causing unemployment to rise to accelerating and causing unemployment to fall. Um, the, the, the danger is we are exploit, trying to exploit the credit impulse when we're at a level we simply can't afford to borrow any more money uh, at the private sector and therefore I think um, the, the credit impulse is both an explanation of the ups and downs of the cycle but also why I think we're going to be in a permanently down cycle until we reduce that absolute level of debt. Hmm. And um, finally, Steve, you're you're uh, working on a second edition of your book, Debunking Economics. Uh, when can we expect that? And and uh, what what how much of that is going to change from the origi original publication? Uh, hopefully, September. That's the deadline I've got with Z Books. I'm working to finish the book by um, in February during February, so it's going to be you know about the usual production time. Hopefully, it'll be available in, on bookshelves in September. There's been an enormous change in the book. I mean, I, I wrote the book back in 2000 because I could see a financial crisis coming and I knew that um, the only way to actually get rid of the nonsense that is known as neoclassical economics from um, the intellectual history of the human race was to wait till it completely stuffed up the global economy and then point out why, why it would have done that in the first place. And what I've done in the last 10 years is dramatically improve the calibre of my critique um, on the basic idea of the theories of supply and demand and so on and I've also developed uh, further on my Minsky-based ideas of financial crises. And what I'll be covering in the book is, as, as well as expanding on why the theory of supply and demand is frankly bad mathematics, uh, combined with wishful thinking, um, why macroeconomists were the last people who were capable of seeing that a financial crisis was coming, and then finally giving a preliminary explanation as to why we got into this mess in the first place by explaining Minsky's financial instability hypothesis in a way that uh, can be understood by non-mathematical readers. So, fairly ambitious book. Uh, the last one sold about 20,000 copies and is still selling 10 years after I first produced it, but uh, given the fact that the crisis that 
made that I expected that got me to write the book in the first place has now happened. It's time to write a wrap up. Okay. Um, very good. And finally, Steve, I mean, a year ago or two years ago, when people have asked me for, you know, what they should do with their money, I've always told mm. them cash and gold, cash and gold. Now, gold's done mm. very well, but cash over the last 18 months or so has been a pretty rotten investment. Um, what would you be advising people to do with their money now? How should they protect themselves? Well, the first thing is getting out of debt. And if you think about going from being where you've got an asset uh, and no cash to where you've got a cash and no asset, I think that's actually pretty good at performance for most people. So you might you know, say cash didn't work all that well, but imagine the alternative of having a, a leveraged asset that went down in value. So it's, it's a good defensive um, asset to hold. And of course, also, if you have cash during a crisis, you can be a vulture buyer. So that's the main advantage of cash that I see. And gold, as you said, has done very well. But uh, I mean, I'm not a gold bug. I'm, uh, I've been I've spoken at a couple of gold conferences. And to me, uh, gold is uh, a, a very speculative commodity. And the danger is always there that people at some stage are going to be needing need to li- liquidate gold and then gold goes down and cash goes up. So but, but certainly as a hedge, the combination you've talked about, gold and cash, uh, is certainly safer than being caught up in, that, in share markets and property. Excellent stuff. Well, Steve, um, thank you so much for your time. We've spoken for about 50 minutes, and uh, it's just been fascinating stuff all the way through. I, I imagine Leighton Hewitt's either won or lost by now. <laughs> I'll soon find out. <laughs> but, uh, Steve, why don't you give out uh, your, your, your websites uh, if people want to follow you? Sure. Uh, the main one is my blog at the moment. That's uh, the, the Debt Watch blog. With the actual address is www.debtdeflation.com. Debt deflation, all is one word, slash blogs, B-L-O-G-S, plural. But if you just type www.debtdeflation.com, that'll take you to a link to go to the blog. That's the main thing I'm working on now. That has about 50,000 readers a month and about 8,500 members. And uh, my other site is called debunkingeconomics.com. That's pretty much in advance right now. But once I finish writing the book, I'm going to be updating that website as well. Excellent stuff. Well, Steve Keen, thank you very much. Thank you, Don. That was great. Good fun. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes.